We're in the section, chapters 2 and 3, the different letters to the churches given to the Apostle John in a vision at the end of his life while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. These letters, you know, seven of them to be exact, are written to actual churches, churches in Asia Minor facing real circumstances. I was thinking, can you imagine if our church, Twin City Bible Church, received a personal letter from the Lord Jesus Christ telling us what he thought of our ministry? What would that be like? What would he say to us? If one day we got an envelope in the mail addressed to Twin City Bible Church, 1337 Ebert Street, signed from the glorified risen Christ, the Lord of the church. No return address. Instead, in its place, a message saying, I'm, I'll, I'll come to you. Well, this is exactly what happened to seven, these seven churches at the time of John's writing in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. We've already looked at. We're going to look at Philadelphia tonight and then Laodicea next time. And we, we actually have these recorded for us for our benefit in these two chapters, these very letters that were written to each of these churches marking out their specific strengths, their weaknesses, where Jesus declares to them, here's what I think about your church. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, to think about. You'd, you'd probably listen to that Wednesday night sermon a little differently, wouldn't you? We got up and read a, church, a letter specifically to our church. Tonight we come to the second to last of these seven letters, like I said, these seven churches, and it is the letter to the church in Philadelphia, and you can find it in chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 7 through 13 will be the section we'll look at tonight, but before we look at that, let's pray for our study this evening. Father, we thank you, we thank you for your word, for your revealed truth to us, the mind of God, the words of Christ. We pray that you might till the soil of our hearts now to receive what you would have us to hear, open our ears so that we may hear. Father, make it so that we would not only comprehend but that we would be convicted, that it would change us. And all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, perhaps some of you were aware that on this past Sunday, January 16th, faithful pastors all over Canada stood up in their pulpits to preach a message on biblical sexuality that potentially would result in the government closing down of their churches. Maybe you're not aware of that, but many of us received an email um, from Dr. MacArthur updating us on this situation in Canada. And this is because on January 8th, the, the week prior, Bill C-4 came into effect a bill which was passed in December without opposition in the Canadian House and Senate, a bill that was designed to amend the criminal code in Canada to essentially ban what it labels as conversion therapy. Now, in case you're not aware of what that means or what that's referring to, the bill itself defines conversion therapy as, quote, listen carefully to this, a practice treatment or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. 
to, to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, to change a person's expressions so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. This bill is designed, it bans the practice and treatment or service designed to repress, it says, or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior to repress a person's non-cisgender identity or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person birth. What does all that mean? In short, as of January 8th, 2022, in Canada, as one pastor would put it, it will be against the law to preach teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. Now, suppose that Jesus were to write a letter to the church in Canada today, to the small, faithful congregation whose pastor was perhaps soon to be imprisoned for preaching a biblical view of gender and sexuality and marriage. What do you think that letter would say? How do you think it would go? What would be Christ's encouragement to that church in that situation? I don't think you have to imagine too much. I think it would actually sound a lot like this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. You see, you get a sense here in this letter that the church in Philadelphia was not a very big or impressive church or ministry, especially to those perhaps on the outside looking in. Notice here that Jesus says in verse 8 that they have a little power. Unlike the church in Sardis that we looked at last week, which if you remember in verse 1 of chapter 3, had made a name and reputation for itself and seemed to be large and influential on the surface, though on the inside it was dead, the church here in Philadelphia was quite the opposite. It was small. It was insignificant. It was struggling. So it seemed. And not only was it small, but we find out, as we just read, that it was, it was also suffering. Notice that Christ mentions here in verse 9 the same hostile group of Jews who were persecuting the church that was already mentioned in Smyrna back in chapter 2, putting those believers in prison, threatening them with death, Jesus uses the same exact phrase and language here to identify this group as the, the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. But this is, this is a small church. 
a small church that was coming under attack, suffering from persecution. But we also find out here, as you notice as we read these verses, that though they were small, though they were insignificant, though they were suffering, this was a church that didn't cave or compromise under that persecution. Notice the end of verse 8. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. In verse 10, you have kept the word of my perseverance. You see, this was a small church, a suffering church, but this was a faithful church, a beloved church. Perhaps you noticed as we read through this letter that unlike the seemingly large and reputable church in Sardis, of which Jesus, you remember last time, has pretty much nothing good to say about, this little unimpressive, persecuted Philadelphian church receives almost unqualified praise and commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, along with the church in Smyrna, these, these are the only two churches you could say, they don't really receive any rebuke at all. They both happen to be under heavy persecution. Perhaps that's not a coincidence. But we need to be reminded here, Jesus does not evaluate churches the way we sometimes are prone to evaluate churches, right? What makes for a good church? We ask that all the time. Maybe you've been asked that before. Maybe you've asked that question. Is it how many people go there? Is it the fact that they have a lot of really cool programs for my kids? Is it that they have an eye-catching and easy-to-navigate website? Is it a nice building? Is it blowing and going ministry activities, organization, and structure? Listen, Philadelphia had none of that. And yet it was a church that had Christ's stamp of approval. So how does Christ encourage this small and suffering congregation? What is his message to them? And here, here's your outline for tonight. I just put it on one slide for you. And this is how we're going to walk through it. But we're going to pull out four encouragements for a small and suffering church. Encouragement of Christ's character, the encouragement of Christ's commendation, the encouragement of Christ's coming, and the encouragement of Christ's command. So let's walk through this together and see what we can learn. Notice first the encouragement of Christ's character. Verses 7 and really the first part of verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. See, as Jesus does in his message to the other churches here, he opens by making sure that the Philadelphians know precisely who it is who is speaking to them. And all these characteristics of Christ are mentioned here specifically to encourage this little church in what they are facing. They're not throwaway comments. Notice the first two characteristics mentioned here. Jesus identifies himself as he who is holy who is true. I think what, what is the takeaway from the combination of these two initial qualities and characteristics? I think Jesus is here first reassuring the church that, listen, he is faithful to his mission and to his word. He is faithful to his messianic mission and to his word, to that which God had sent him here in the first place to accomplish, not just in his first coming, but also in his second. Notice, the only other place these two words show up together in Revelation 
is in chapter 6, if you want to just flip over there for a moment. Chapter 6, verse 10, we'll see this verse, we'll highlight it again later on here. But notice for now where the context here is with those who are martyred for their faith cry out to God, and here is their plea, how long, O Lord, and our two words here, holy and true. And here is their plea, how long will you, the Holy One, the True One, refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, the implication there, even in that context, in the voice of the martyrs, is that because the Lord is holy and true, He will judge and avenge their unjust death. Their petition is simply, how long? When is it going to happen? Because you are, Lord, you are holy, you are true, you are faithful to to do what you have promised in the Scriptures We know you will judge. We know you will avenge. We know you will come and right every wrong and fulfill that which God had sent you for. It's not a question of if, but when. And this is Jesus' message here, I think, in these two attributes. Especially when you take them together together. He reassures this small and suffering congregation. Think about this. I am holy and true. In other words, I will be faithful to what I have promised. This is Old Testament language applied to Christ. It would be helpful for us to understand that for Christ to identify himself as the Holy One, I think maybe your mind immediately goes to purity and sinlessness when you think of holiness, but in this context, it's probably more of a comment about his messianic identity. Because all throughout the Old Testament, for example, Psalm 16 verse 10, the Messiah is referred to as the Holy One. The one, the one who was consecrated and set apart as God's anointed to fulfill His purposes. When Jesus was here on earth, you remember the demons called Him the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. So, as the Lord's sent Messiah, Christ is the Holy One who came to save His people from their sins, but who is also coming again a second time to bring justice and peace on the earth. And not only is He in this sense the Holy One, but He is also true. Meaning He is trustworthy and He keeps His promises. Notice to the very next church in Laodicea, He'll declare, chapter 3, verse 14, He is the the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Beloved, Jesus is faithful to his messianic mission. He will avenge every wrong. Do you believe that? He will reward the righteous, no matter what it looks like in this present life. He will do it. Do you believe that? He is holy and true. It can be hard to believe sometimes, can't it? That Jesus is who he says he is when we are suffering, being marginalized. John the Baptist had this same problem. We're in good company, perhaps. Matthew 11, verse 2, you remember when John, while imprisoned, heard the words of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the expected one? Literally, Are you the coming one, the one who is coming? Or shall we look for someone else? Here, Christ, with these two designations, reassures this small suffering church he is. And he will fulfill his promise when he comes again. With these opening designations, He is the Holy One. He is the True One. He will come again as the Messiah to finish what He began. 
What an encouragement. What an encouragement. But notice he adds next, he's also the one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens. This, I think, is Jesus telling us that he is the sovereign one who has all kingdom authority and power. Not only is he faithful and true and coming again, but he is also sovereign, having all authority and power to accomplish what he desires. The Old Testament background for this reference, the key of David and opening and closing is found in Isaiah 22, verse 22, where the context is in the days of Hezekiah's reign in Judah, you may remember you're familiar with your Old Testament and Israel's history, uh, you can go back and refresh your memory if you want to read 2 Chronicles chapter 29. You may remember that Hezekiah, was he a good king or bad king? Good. (laughs) He was a good king. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings in Judah. And 2 Chronicles 29 tells us that in the first year of his reign, in the first month, listen to the language, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. In other words, Hezekiah actually brought back true worship back into the temple. And part of his reform was in Isaiah 22, taking the keys of the royal kingdom away from a wicked steward named Shebna and giving them to a man named Eliakim who would then be entrusted from then on with this royal authority. And that's the picture that Christ picks up here. It's one of authority and access to the messianic kingdom. Of course, you know the language of keys is familiar to us even in the New Testament. It shows up in that famous text in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, in reference to the church that Christ is building. Jesus already spoke of himself. Just look back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, as having the keys of death and of Hades. Again, it's a statement of authority, this time of authority over the grave. But when you put all of that together, we understand that Christ is reminding this little church and reminding us by extension that he is the sovereign one over the messianic kingdom. The keys belong to him, and he alone can open or close that kingdom to whomever he desires. And listen, no one can turn back his hand. What a comfort that is to his church. What an encouragement this would have been. You can imagine to a small and struggling congregation, one whose members would have likely been barred from the local synagogue because of their faith in Christ. Jesus says, but I have given you an open door and no one can shut it. In fact, notice that's exactly what he tells them In verse 8, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. You know, some have seen in this verse a promise by Christ to the church in Philadelphia of ministry opportunities and gospel influence and doors for evangelism because elsewhere in the scriptures the language of an open door does at times refer to opportunities for the gospel, Acts chapter 14 Verse 27, Colossians 4, verse 3. But given the immediate context here of what we just looked at in verse 7, I think it's better to understand this as access, as referring to access and entrance into the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that is Jesus' encouragement here to this little church. When Jesus welcomes you into his kingdom, listen, no amount of opposition by the world, your flesh, or the powers of hell can close that door to you. 
Christian, let that comfort you. Here, Christ comforts his people with that magnificent doctrine of eternal security. Friends, in the the words provided to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, who will separate us from the love of Christ? What he has opened, no one can close. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of those things can shut what he, the Lord of the church, has opened. Little church, powerless Christian, take comfort in the fact that Jesus has opened the way to you, a way that no one can deny you. There's one more encouragement here of Christ's character, I think, at the beginning of verse 8. Not only is he faithful to fulfill his messianic mission, not only is he sovereign over his messianic kingdom, notice Christ is also, he says here, he's omniscient, and he knows his church perfectly. Look at what he says. He declares, I know your deeds. I know. Does that comfort you? Christian, that God knows that he sees what you are experiencing, what you're going through, what you have to persevere in, what you're suffering Christian, Jesus knows, Jesus sees, he knows personally, and he knows perfectly. And this, of course, can be both a comfort and a warning, can't it? Here it's meant as an encouragement to a small and insignificant congregation who is suffering unjustly at the hands of their enemies. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, Chapter 6, verse 10. Christian, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which you have shown towards his name. He knows. He remembers. He sees. And he's not unjust so as to forget that. You may be facing all of these things now, suffering patiently, waiting anxiously wondering, does God know what I'm going through? The psalmists did this at times, didn't they? Cried out to the Lord, Lord, do you see? Jesus is here reassuring this small church, you're not too small so as to escape my gaze. Dear Christian, he knows every time you quietly endure persecution and mocking for the truth in your workplace. He knows. He knows every word you could have said in retaliation. He knows every sacrifice you make as a family to wake up early, to, to get your kids to Sunday morning when the rest of the world is sleeping. He knows. God is not unjust. He knows your deeds. He sees what you do and what you suffer and what you sacrifice. But what is it specifically about the Philadelphian church here that Jesus says he knows? Well, notice this brings us to our next major encouragement in verse 8. That is not just the encouragement of Christ's character, but the encouragement of Christ's commendation. Verse 8 rest of verse 8 at least, look at what Jesus says that he knows of this little church. He says, I know your deeds, and specifically that you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Notice as we've said already, they are commended here despite their weakness, despite their apparent weakness. He says, I know that you have, you have little power. 
You say, how, how is this an encouragement? This is an encouragement, isn't it? We would, do, we would do well to remember that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world that despised. God has chosen the things that are not, the nothings, so that he may nullify the things that are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen, you don't have to be powerful in the world's eyes to be commended by God. That is the encouragement here. In fact, God sees not as man sees. The church in Philadelphia is commended here despite their outward appearance of weakness because inwardly they were strong in faith. Notice the last two clauses here. You have little power, but it's probably the better sense of this conjunction here, but you have kept my word. Look, even, even though you are small, even though you are insignificant, even though you are weak, the power is perfected in your weakness. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. The, these two clauses are two sides to the same coin. To, to keep Christ's word is to not deny his name. To not deny his name is to obey his word. Just listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the two go together. The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. The Philadelphian church is here commended, not just despite their weakness, But with these two clauses, they're commended for their faithfulness. Their faithfulness to Christ and to His Word. Dear church, this in the end, this is what God evaluates. Think about it. Not the strength of numbers, the strength of finances, or the strength of popularity in the community but the strength of our faith. Are we faithful to the word of God? Is our church, could our church be commended for this? This is the kind of church that Christ commends. Whatever it looks like on the outside, whatever size, and notice, not just that we teach the word of God, or even that we know the Word of God really well or that we have the word Bible in the name of our church. But the verb here is that we would keep the Word of God. That is what Christ evaluates. That is what He commends. Faithfulness to His Word and to His name. Philadelphia was encouraged here by Christ's commendation no doubt, despite their weakness and for their faithfulness. But notice next, Christ continues to pile on the encouragement to this little church. Look at verses 9 through 12. Look at verses 9 through 12. We come to the most perhaps eschatological future pointing section yet. Not just in this letter, but perhaps even out of all the letters that John has written so far, perhaps even out of all the, the book, these first three chapters, we'll just call this section the encouragement of Christ's coming. Verses 9 through 12. And notice all of the verbs now in this section are future tense, technically. Except the one in verse 11 where Jesus says, notice, I'm coming quickly, which is in the present tense, but get the idea even there, how even that statement is pointing to the future, speaking of the imminence of Christ's return. In other words, he is presently on his way. He's coming. He's the coming one. To the church in Pergamum, this was a warning. Chapter 2, verse 16, to Sardis. In chapter 3, verse 2, the language is 
a little bit different, but the idea is the same. I will come like a thief. And it's also a warning, but here to the church in Philadelphia, it's a promise. A promise that is intended to encourage them. And all the future promises given here are are to, to encourage this small and suffering church. And they're all connected to this idea of Christ's coming quickly. Notice first, under this heading, the encouragement of Christ's coming, notice first, in the text, that Christ's coming promises our vindication. Look at verse 9. Promises our vindication. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And this is a future promise of a vindication for God's people, vindication before and even in the presence of their enemies. That's the language here. There's an interesting debate that goes on amongst scholars about whether this depicts the actual conversion of these enemies of God's people here or if it's just a subjugation, a forced homage, um, And the text really, it doesn't clarify that for us. It's hard to say definitively one way or the other. But we do have other passages of Scripture and prophecy like, if you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 60, you can go and study later, verse 14, that teach also that one day, quote, the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet vindication of God's people before their enemies on the last day. Whether they're forced to do so against their will or they do so willingly is a sign of their conversion and repentance. Again, the text here does not explicitly say, but whatever the case may be, notice what the text does tell us that they'll be made to do. Three verbs. They'll come. They'll bow down. But this final one is the most incredible of them all. And they will know that I have loved you. Christian, think about this for a moment. Can you you picture that day? Can can you picture the, the one in your life right now who is the most hostile to you and your God, the most hostile to you because of your God. Friends, there is coming a day when all of those who have scorned your faith in Christ, who have mocked God and mocked you for believing in that God, will come, this passage says, to a startling realization that those people whom I persecuted those people whom I put in prison, whom I slandered and shamed and ridiculed for their faith, they are the ones whom God loves. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is, is described as the one who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. Beloved, Christ has proven His love for us at His first coming. In His second coming, He will declare it to the world. Christ encourages the church here in Philadelphia by His coming because His coming promises their vindication before their enemies. Even specifically, it's interesting to note here that the enemies being referred to in this text by Christ are those Jews, did you notice, of the synagogue of Satan. Now, that's interesting. Someday, unbelieving Jews, Jesus is saying here, who have rejected Him as the Messiah will also come to the realization that the Gentile church was right and that God did indeed love them as well. 
In fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Listen, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Think about this. There, there will be no mistaking who Jesus is in that day. Everyone's going to know in an instant. And, and likewise, our text says that there will be no mistaking who Jesus loves on that day. Twin City Bible Church, do you know that you are beloved of God? You may be small, Christian. You may be weak. You may suffer in this life. You may face extreme hardship and opposition by many enemies. Do you know that you're precious to the Lord? One day, everyone will know, including your enemies. So Christ says to this little church, take heart, be encouraged. I'm coming quickly. You will have vindication. But notice there's yet another promise given here by Christ for their encouragement that is connected to his coming. Secondly, notice that Christ's coming promises not only our vindication as his people, but also our protection, our protection or preservation, whatever word you want to use. Look at verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, Jesus says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, there is a play on words here because the little church, he says, has kept his word. Christ here is promising to keep them. Now, the big question, of course, in this text is keep them from what? Now, for those of you who have studied eschatology, yes, we're about to wade into this. Notice what the text says, though. Without getting bogged down by differing views of the rapture and the tribulation, let's look first. Notice what the text actually says. The object of the preposition, keep them from what? From... The hour of testing, clearly a specific period of time. The hour, the definite article is present. It is a definite period that is characterized, notice here, by this word testing, the normal New Testament word for trial. But what exactly then is this specific period of trials referring to? Great question. John actually further defines it for us in the next phrase. That hour, look, he says, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So what do we glean from that? Number one, we know that this is a future specified period of time from the words about to come. You see that? Two, we know that this is a global and universal or a worldwide event from the words upon the whole world. And three, we even know that Jesus says here that the purpose of this period of trials is to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, it's fascinating if you chase around this last phrase, those who dwell in the earth, literally earth dwellers, it's a favorite of John's in this book of Revelation. And here's what's interesting. It is always, in every context that it shows up in Revelation, referring to the unbelieving people of the world. I'll give you just one example of that that we've already seen in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. Remember, the martyrs there, we've already seen this, are crying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on, here it is, those who dwell on the earth? So when you put all of that together, it seems that Jesus, think about this, is promising here 
to keep these faithful Christians from or out of this definite period of future global tribulation that is intended specifically to test the unbelievers of the world. That's what we end up with. Which is why I believe this is one piece of the puzzle concerning the end times that supports a pre-tribulation view of when the rapture takes place. That God is promising here, that Christ is promising here that He will remove them and keep them from or out of that particular period of time which is coming in the future. Christ is obviously not promising that these Christians are exempt from all trials of life in general, right? We know that's not true. We know that's not true in the rest of the New Testament. But even in this context, we know that's not true because the church in Philadelphia has clearly gone through some of that already. And they've actually been found faithful. They've been tested. And because they've been found faithful in the trials and the persecution that they've faced thus far, Jesus is saying here in verse 10, I will keep you from that period. His encouragement to them here is that when he comes, he will take them out of, which is the best translation of this preposition. By the way, if Christ meant preservation in and through this period of time, he would have used two other very clear prepositions available to him in the Greek language. But at the time of the tribulation, though, this time that is coming upon the world, Jesus says here, he will keep them from. Time of tribulation, which I think is referred to in Mark chapter 13, verse 19, such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, since God created until now and never will. Time Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that is called a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So there it is. That's my view. I realize a lot of good men disagree with me here, but if you want to talk more about it, you can find me afterwards. Notice you have to move on. Lastly, there's, there's one more promise here, really two more future verbs that go together that Jesus encourages this small church with. That's this promise of our communion. Our communion. Not just our vindication, not just our protection, but our communion. Notice verse 12, he who overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. You see, the one who holds fast, Jesus says here, he is the one who overcomes. And Jesus ends his message to this church with a final promise to those who would remain faithful. His final promise to the overcomer is twofold. There are two main verbs here. I will make, I will make him a pillar, and I will write. I will write the names, and three names in particular that we'll look at in a moment. But the first picture is the language of permanent communion and fellowship. Eternal communion and fellowship. Notice, I will make him, Jesus says here, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And in a city like Philadelphia, which was located in a region plagued by earthquakes. You heard last time, it was just 35 miles south, southeast of Sardis. And you remember, maybe you remember Kerry said last time, there, that existed. I mean, that whole region was volcanic, and, and there was actually a massive earthquake that struck that area in A.D. 17, destroying the city of Sardis, and also this city of Philadelphia. So you can imagine in a city like that, which is plagued by earthquakes, literally in an area where the locals called that which burns down, <laughs> pillars were 
obvious pictures of stability and strength, permanence, support, and safety. Maybe you've noticed in pictures of ancient ruins, or maybe you've even visited ancient ruins yourself and had the privilege of walking around them. Oftentimes, perhaps you'll notice that the only things left standing are the pillars. Because they're some of the most stable parts of a structure aside from the foundation. Revelation 21, later on, verse 22, of course, tells us that there in that new Jerusalem, there, there's no actual physical or literal temple. So we know here the language is symbolic. Obviously, we understand that already intuitively because John says that the Christians are the pillars. So what does the temple represent here? Then the temple is clearly representative of fellowship and communion with God. It implies then, when you put those pictures together, it implies His continual abiding presence in the midst of His people. This is permanent communion. Do you long for that day, Christian? And notice what Christ adds here then to strengthen that picture. He says, and he will not go out from it. It's the strongest grammatical way John says here to negate something in the Greek. It's it's actually double negative, which is bad English, good Greek. (laughs) I just mean, this is Jesus' way of stressing the utter impossibility of losing this fellowship with God. That there is no possible way this separation would ever happen. Permanent communion. But not only is this communion permanent, second, notice this is also a personal and possessive communion. Notice, he says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the city the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. I will write on him. You know, as I was studying this, I couldn't help. I'm sorry, I have little kids. I couldn't help but think of Toy Story. You know what I'm talking about? Where Andy writes his name on the bottom of Woody's foot to mark his territory. This belongs to me. We do that today, don't we? Personal, possessive communion. Notice how many times even here the word my occurs and it was repeated four times. My God, the name of my God, the city of my God, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Three times also the the word name occurs here. The idea of having someone's name in the Bible, perhaps you know this already, represents close personal identification and association with this person and their character. Beloved, on those, Jesus is saying here, who have not denied my name, I will permanently write my name. Just like we write names on our things, this is what Jesus promises to do to the redeemed. Except notice there are actually three names being written here on the overcomer. The name of my God, this is who we belong to. The the name of the city of my God, this is where we belong, which he calls the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. That's imagery borrowed again from Daniel's or Ezekiel's prophecy that we'll see again in Revelation chapter 21. And the third name is Christ's new name, possibly his new redemptive name, which Revelation 19.12 says no one knows yet. But beloved, how sweet of an encouragement is this? How sweet of an encouragement this would have been to a small and seemingly insignificant church that was facing persecution, that was disowned by the Jews, How sweet it is that one day 
to know that they would have a permanent and personal communion with their God that no one could take from them, that they would have a stable home and relationship with Him. Those who were so used to their buildings crumbling at the threat of volcanic activity, this would have been an incredible picture to them sweet picture, Christian, of our eternal home. Lastly, notice that this church is not left with, without an exhortation or command. You have the encouragement of Christ's character, the encouragement of Christ's commendation, the encouragement of Christ's coming, and very quickly, finally, the encouragement of Christ's command. See, Jesus has no difficulties or qualms teaching perseverance alongside security. And this is helpful for us theologians, right, who want to make everything make sense. Jesus has no problem putting those two things side by side. I will hold you. I will secure you. I have opened, no one can shut it, but you hold fast. In fact, it should always be that the promise of eternal security would motivate or provoke us as God's people to persevere, right? This is the logic of the gospel. And do you know that? Notice the only two commands then found here in Philadelphia to the church in Philadelphia are, number one, hold fast to what you have, which comes in verse 11. And then secondly, the refrain that we've seen already before in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, we could say hold fast to what you have and use what you have. And use what you have. Persevere and practice. Christian, you have been given much. You have been given an open door. Hold fast to it. You have been given ears to hear. If you believe in Him, if you've believed in Him, you've been given an open door into the kingdom. Hold fast and persevere, Jesus is saying here to them. He is encouraging them to continue in faithfulness. Be faithful until the end. Strive to enter with Christ's promises ringing in your ears. We have to end by asking, would, would this properly characterize our church? I said earlier, it would be amazing if we received a letter from Jesus himself. He's so interested to hear, what, what does he have to say about Twin City Bible Church? What would he say to us? Would it resemble this one? I pray that it would. Let's pray for that together. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, and for all these precious and magnificent promises, they were given to this little church, this insignificant, suffering congregation. And yet, in a very real sense, we know because they're recorded for us in the scriptures that we might benefit from them and they are given to us. Father, may this strengthen our conviction and encourage us to remain faithful, to to evaluate ourselves even upon the same basis that you would evaluate us by. Lord, make us faithful. Help us to hold fast to that which we have. And we thank you for the securing work of Christ that, and for the promise that he has opened the way that no one can shut it to those who have believed. And we pray for greater gospel 
witness in this world, greater endurance for the testings that will come, perhaps soon even upon our church. We ask for your protection and we ask for courage to stand boldly and faithfully, to cling to your word, to obey and to keep as this little church did. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thanks for coming out and braving the, the roads. Um, travel safe. And uh, we'll, Lord willing, see you on Sunday. You're dismissed. Say hi to someone you don't, you don't recognize. There are some people over here, by the way, that you should say hi to.